Welcome to Smart Healthcare Safety from ECRI Institute, where we have real conversations about real safety issues in healthcare. I'm your host, Paul Anderson. More than 5,000 members across all care settings rely on us as an independent, trusted authority to improve the safety, quality, and cost-effectiveness of patient care. You can learn more about our unique capabilities to improve outcomes at www.ecri.org. Today, we're talking about surgical staplers. Recent news coverage has highlighted safety issues that users can encounter with these devices, prompting the Food and Drug Administration to consider reclassifying them as a higher risk category. ECRI Institute has warned of these risks twice in its annual Top 10 Health Technology Hazards Report, going back as far as 2010. We'll look at how we got here, what's coming next, and what operating room staff and leadership can do right now to reduce the risk of patient harm. To get us started, let's ask each of our guests to introduce themselves. Sure. So my name is Scott Lucas. I'm our Director of Accident and Forensic Investigation Services at ECRI Institute. I'm Julie Miller. I'm a Senior Project Engineer in the Health Devices Group at ECRI Institute. I know you both have worked a lot on the surgical stapler issue, and and we're going to get into you know, Scott, you just came back recently from a meeting at FDA where we talked about this, and Julie, you've done evaluations, and you brought some props we're going to talk about, some actual surgical staplers. But actually, I'm going to start at the beginning, I think, a little bit, and maybe if we could define just to start, what are surgical staplers? How did they evolve in the medical device world? Where did they come from? What are they? Sure. So it's an interesting technology, and it's not your typical desk stapler. First of all, although it's it's somewhat inspired by it, really. Um, you might be surprised that the staples actually look exactly the same, you know, the little bee that you want from your paper stapler, but just very, very, very tiny. <laughs> exactly. Skin staplers have been around since the early 1900s. The staplers we're referring to, they emerged in the mid-century, 1950s, early 1960s, actually from a Russian technology. And the U.S. acquired that technology and then was born U.S. Surgical Corporation. And that, you know, evolved to Tyco. Covidian, and here we are. Ethicon joined in the mid-1970s. So the technology has evolved quite a bit over the years from your basic stapling functionality to laparoscopic and endoscopic techniques. So it has evolved over the years. And what's interesting is the classifications remain the same. Okay, I want to talk about classification, but let's make sure that I know exactly what we're talking about. When we say stapler, I mean, I'm looking at these devices in front of me, and they're, what, 18 inches, 2 feet long, and they've got a trigger. What are we stapling? Like literally, I mean, are we talking viscera? Like what kind of good stuff are we stapling in there during surgery? It can be a variety of things. There's a lot of abdominal and gastrointestinal surgery that these would cover. And it's not just the ones that are brought in here. These are all uh, linear endoscopic staplers. But there's also circular staplers that would do kind of like an end-to-end anastomosis of intestines. Okay. So cutting out a bad section of bowel and bringing two ends together to join them back up. So those look even more different. So there's just this whole variety and a bunch of different applications where you don't have the time or the ability to suture something closed and you would bring in a stapler to do the job for you more quickly and hopefully safely. What's brought them into the news recently? Well, it's a good question. So like I said, I mean, the technology has evolved over the years. And now to piggyback off of Julie a little bit, it's moved into powered stapling as well. So these, what we're looking at at the desk here, are manual staplers. They've moved into powered. There's one powered there. there oh, there is one <laughs> powered there. Battery power, yes. Julie, we mentioned in some cases we've now added to the manual staplers, we've added these battery-powered biomechanical ones. 
Is the chief difference the amount of force that I need to use to actually fire the stapler? Or are there other either clinical differences or sort of user experience differences? There are differences between not just the powered and manual staplers from one manufacturer, but also between manufacturers. So one of the chief differences between them would be the stability during the firing sequence. And also one of the manufacturers offers a reusable stapler handle, whereas all the ones in front of you are actually disposable, which can be surprising. Yeah, that is actually surprising. (laughs) It's a lot of bulk. The other one has a reusable handle that gets recharged and disposable components. Okay. So that's one difference. That stapler will actually give you force feedback regarding the force required to move through the tissue that you're clamped on. It has a little window that is giving you a gauge for how thick the tissue you're moving through Mm, is. Okay. So that gives you a little bit more of an idea as opposed to the others where your main sense of the tissue thickness is what you're used to is the force required to clamp on that tissue. Okay. Gotcha. You mentioned stability Mm -hmm. difference. Can you explain that a little bit? So to fire one of these manual endoscopic staplers that we've got in front of us, you need to clamp on the tissue. You may or may not need to unlock to indicate that you're ready to fire. And then there's a sequence of pumps of the trigger, kind of three to five, depending on the manufacturer, that's actually moving the knife forward through the tissue, moving that knife down the channel. So there can be movement involved in just compressing the trigger. It's a large distance to cover, and you can, you know, small movements here can have larger effects down the end effector of the stapler. So the powered staplers are seeking to automate that process. So basically, you clamp on the tissue, you unlock it, and then the knife advances on its own, it retracts on its own. You just have less disruption. Yeah, there's less disruption down the distal end. Gotcha. Okay. So that's a really interesting design, and it kind of goes to the point of how this has evolved. And in the interest of patient safety, really, I mean, what we're focusing on now, I mean, we're less concerned about the internal mechanics from the handle to the end of the cartridge breaking or failing or, you know, that causing a patient safety event. But we are very interested in that, that tissue cartridge interface where it's at, the action is actually happening. So all of these powered features are really going to that. So what are the biomechanics? This is viscoelastic tissue. So what's the compression required at what speed at which the knife transects the tissue is required? Is the tissue too thick for the cartridge that's installed? Is the tissue too thick? And one of the things we're looking at, is there a way to have a tissue gauge, a thickness gauge, such that if it exceeds the recommended thickness, there's a safety lockout feature, you know, things like that. Can we get even smarter? So I think that's where this technology is going, of Mm. getting very smart at that interface, which arguably will improve outcomes. Sure. Sure. Well, anytime you can remove, I don't want to say it. Take out the human? I was, yeah. I mean, that's sort of where I was going. So let me say it. Anytime you can give the person who's using the device more information and then eventually put a forcing function so that they can't make a bad decision. Yeah. You know, the right forcing function is the right term. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And there's a kind of a balance, right? I mean, you want haptic feedback sometimes as well. So you want to be able to feel it, arguably. That's one philosophy versus another with the manufacturer. So we're kind of weeding through those details as well. Another issue is that it's a totally experience-based thing. So when you're starting out, how do you know? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, right. I'm imagining you handed me one of these, even without tissue in there, I would have no idea how hard to squeeze it to start or how long or how many times the way you describe. But after I've done my hundredth, my thousandth procedure, you know, I can do it in my sleep. One thing that's interesting on that note is sometimes it's not the attending surgeon or the primary surgeon that's doing the firing. It could be an assisting or a resident as well. Mm. So there can be a gap there of experience. Mm-hmm. And that's something to think about on the front end. Like, 
are you ready to fire this stapler? You know, right. at some point you have to get your first procedure in the books. Right. But we do need to appreciate the risk on the front end. It's got to be adequately supervised and Correct. You know, the training up front. Same idea. Correct. And recently there's been a news outlet that reported what's called the Alternative Summary Reporting Database in the FDA. And that surgical staplers have been reported through that database in the case of malfunctions of staplers. So there's been some hype about that, some discussion about, well, what's in those reports? Is that, are they important to patient safety? So there's that. There's also the fact that, like I said, this technology has evolved. There's been a recent reanalysis of MOD data by the FDA as well, the, the MDR MOD database through the FDA, which is the database repository for injuries and in deaths or malfunctions. So that analysis has revealed, I have it here, 41,000 injuries, 366 deaths since January 2011. So there's a reanalysis of that to show that there's a good amount of data in there. So those three things essentially have been leading into the need for this meeting of reclassification. When you talk about those numbers, Scott, the 41,000 injuries, I think you said, is that inclusive of what was submitted through the alternative reporting mechanism? So it is a separate data set. And in that, I believe it was some 50, some thousand reports of malfunction in the alternative summary reporting as well. So together we have, you know, close to 100,000 events, including malfunctions over the last, say, nine years. That's what's led into taking another look at this. Do we have a sense of, are there patterns and themes to the kinds of things that were reported, or I guess to the, also to the kinds of injuries that patients might see? Are there patterns that we know through any of these reporting mechanisms? So there are common themes when we hear that someone claims that the device has malfunctioned. It could mean a variety of things, really. It generally is referring to something unexpected happening during the firing process. That could be the tissue is unexpectedly thick, or the knife isn't moving through it, or it's closed and jammed on the tissue, it's not reopening. Mm -hmm. Or it could be the surgery went fine, but some sort of leak has developed, and the patient's not going to know that until something develops potentially much later. But there's a variety of ways that things could be perceived to have gone wrong or actually go wrong. And we're encouraging more awareness of the correct use and application of the staplers for patient safety. And some of the ones that we get in the investigation side are the more serious events. So we've identified, and it's no secret, some of these procedures are higher risk than others. Sure. If we're doing a lobectomy or a nephrectomy or a hepatectomy, where we're transecting and stapling the major vessels leading into those organs, that's a scenario where if the functionality of the stapler or the usability or something affects that staple line, and it does not form completely, there can be bleeding. So in those scenarios, it can be critical for the patient. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, Scott, one of the things you talked about as you were sort of describing the history of these devices, and you talked about how they've changed over the years and evolved, and now we've got electromechanical ones in addition to the, the more manual ones. You mentioned that the devices have not been reclassified. So let's talk a little bit about that. How are they classified originally? And do we typically see devices reclassified of, of any kind, not just staplers, as the technology evolves? Sure, it's a good question. So they have been historically classified as a class one device, which is designated as the least amount of risk to the patient. So class two is moderate, class three is the one that are like life supporting devices, et cetera. So it, historically, it's been class one. Now, when the FDA proposes to reclassify a device, certain criteria need to be met. One is a change. Is there a change in the industry, in the data, in the design, in medical technique 
clinical technique. Something needs to change, needs to precipitate the reclassification. Then secondly, there should be special controls, as they're called, put in place, or there should be special controls that will mitigate that risk to patient safety. So identifiable special controls that say, if we put these in place, then it will improve patient safety. So those two things need to happen. So the practical effect of the classification, whatever it is, is the different classifications result in how the manufacturer would do what? Would test the device pre-market? Correct. So if there are special controls that are regulated by the FDA, then those should be met by the manufacturer and the design and marketing and labeling of their devices. Okay. Got it. So what typically would initiate a reclassification? So if I've got a device on the market that is a class one, if I sort of make a radical change to the technology of the device and I'm now marketing an essentially a new device, it's going to be reevaluated, I assume, for a classification. But is there a mechanism by which a device that hasn't had a significant technological change is still evaluated, where its classification is still evaluated? Yeah, when they submit a 510K, unless they're exempt from submitting a 510K, in that they'll want to prove that it's substantially equivalent to a, a predicate device. Okay. So if the FDA agrees that it's substantially equivalent to a predicate device, then no need for any change in classification. Gotcha. Okay. And what's interesting, kind of yeah. add to that a little bit, is that there are actually two devices involved in a stapling procedure the stapler, and the staple, the Hmm. implantable staple. So that's housed inside the cartridge and all three of these staplers on the desk here. But the staple is a class two device and always has been. So the stapler is a class one. And obviously the staple, the performance of the staple itself is directly dependent on the performance of the stapler. So (laughs) there's that component as well that justifies the reclassification. Yeah, Scott, it's a good point. So (laughs) I'm showing Paul one of these cartridges that Scott is talking about. It actually houses the staples that are implanted inside the patient. And you can see there's three symmetrical rows of staples that will be deposited Mm -hmm. up towards that metal anvil. It looks just like an anvil on a normal paper stapler, except Mm -hmm. there's about 80 to 100 staples that are going to get pushed up as the staples are deployed. And they're actually followed by a knife that moves down that channel. So first, the tissue is compressed, the staples are deployed, and then a knife follows the deployment of the staples to transect the tissue. So you you never want to cut something before you've compressed it or put the staples in because you don't want anything to bleed. And are those types of scenarios that we might see in the error reporting is we've got either a premature cut. I mean, you mentioned earlier tissue being jammed in there. I know what it's like to jam paper in a desktop state. I'm, right. imagining, I'm imagining that the mechanics are actually probably pretty similar, but right. the effect's much worse. Yeah, you're not wrong. But to the same thing, the paper stapler jammed because you put too much paper in it. Right. Right? <laughs> good point. Um, so you want to carefully match the tissue that you're stapling to the cartridge that you've chosen. And there's a variety, even by manufacturer, of different colored cartridges that have different staple heights that you need to match to mm. the appropriate patient tissue. And it can even vary within the same patient. You might expect that doing a gastric sleeve. So I'm just going to use, I need a thick cartridge. A patient's own tissue can even vary within the same organ. So it's a very delicate process. Sure. And just, you know, careful matching is required. And Scott, you know, you mentioned, and I'm fascinated by this, the different classification of the staple and the stapler. Right. And I'm sort of envisioning... On the one hand, that makes sense to me, right? They work together, but they're different things. Just like in any surgery, I'm using lots of devices, which might have different classifications. But on the other hand, they're so intertwined. 
Right. That, that's fascinating to me. And the staple, you think about the staple, I mean, there's also another layer of consideration for the patient. I mean, you've got to think about biocompatibility and sterility as sure. well. That's really another reason for upclassifying the staple. So we had this meeting at the end of May, I guess, hosted by the Food and Drug Administration. And Scott, you were there. Can you tell me a little bit about what was the purpose of the meeting? What was our role there? What went on? Sure. So it was a good meeting. It was hosted in outside of D.C. And when the FDA needs to or proposes to reclassify a device, the procedure is that an independent panel is brought in to essentially judge and vote on that classification and discuss all the issues that are presented. So that independent panel consisted of surgeons. He was chaired by Dr. Frank Lewis. He was executive director emeritus for the American Board of Surgery. Mm -hmm. And then so there was a host of other surgeons and researchers. There was an industry representative, public representative. And we all presented to that panel things that we found interesting in the field of surgical staplers. Our purpose at ECRI was to present our safety data that we've gathered over the years on staplers. We presented things from our evaluations that Julie's been doing, our accident investigations that we've done, our patient safety organization data and other data to kind of paint the picture of how we feel about the surgical stapler safety. And then we opined at that point that it should be reclassified. And we did it from the perspective of patient safety, like it's consistent with a moderate risk. It should be classified as class two. And that was actually, interestingly, unanimously agreed upon by everybody there that it should be reclassified to a two. Including the industry representatives. In including Medtronic. Uh, they presented there. Ethicon contributed by proxy, I believe they called in at some point and, and agreed with you know, Medtronic's position that it should be reclassified. The panel agreed unanimously. So there was no real discussion about class one versus class two. There was a, a comment about class three not being necessary, class mm -hmm. two appropriate, class one's inadequate. Gotcha. Yep. So what happens next then? If there was this unanimous recommendation to the panel, do we anticipate a timeline going forward, or what do we think happens next? So the next step, which I think is the most important, is to identify what special controls should be put into place. So mm -hmm. again, from one to two, they need to abide to special controls, which are in addition to the general controls that manufacturers currently go by. Those are the things that we're going to be focusing on. So as part of that, and labeling is an example of a special control, okay. as part of that, the FDA has proposed a draft for labeling guidance and will be assessing the public's opinion on that guidance and coming up with what the FDA feels is the appropriate labeling requirements for the manufacturers. So that's step one. However, the manufacturer's position is that they're basically doing a lot of these controls already. They're forthright on a lot of their testing data and the usability data, some of the technical specifications. So It'll be interesting to see what actually changes. In other words, they're saying they're doing it even though it's not mandated yet. C correct. They've been acting as if it's a class two already okay. in their meticulous design, et cetera, uh, and safety considerations. So it will be interesting to see what actually changed. I want to talk a little bit about what we brought to that meeting. I mean, Scott, you talked about at least three different kind of strands of information that we would have brought whether they're from our patient safety organization, from our own bench evaluations, or from things that we see in the field when we do accident investigations. And as we were talking, getting ready this morning before we started recording, we talked about the fact that we've been talking about these staplers in our top 10 technology hazards, I think it was for almost a decade. You said now it's come up a couple right. different times. So what have we been saying 
I think you said 2010, 2011 was the first time? 2010 was the first one. 2017 was the second More one. More recently. Mm-hmm. And, and so what were we highlighting then? And, and is it consistent even with, you know, with what we talked about in the last month or so as it became a more high-profile issue generally? Sure. So certain themes have evolved through those publications. A lot of it is dependent on involving user familiarity and human factors. So appreciating the risk of the procedure, understanding the exact functionality of the stapler, making sure that the training is sufficient for the users of the stapler, realizing that one stapler is not all staplers. I mean, they all Mm -hmm. have their unique functions and and how they perform. Mm -hmm. So making sure that, for example, if the hospital switches from one model to another, understanding the implications of that and the, the potential ripple effect of that. Developing a backup plan. I mean, if something does go wrong, we've recommended to have backup plan ready to go, whether it be another model stapler, another size, manual suturing ready to go, or conversion to open kits ready to go, those types of themes as well. That kind of backup plan, I'm looking at these devices and I'm saying, okay, this is one person using one device. But I imagine, you know, especially in a scenario we're talking about, we need to emergently convert to an open procedure. Now I've got the whole surgical team having to jump in and play a role maybe even differently than, certainly different than what they were anticipating. It just brings to mind, there's lots of people now who have to know what that backup plan is and be ready to execute it. Sure, that's a good point. I mean, it's a team approach. It also goes to the nursing staff as well. The scrub techs are circulating nurses that have to be familiar with these staplers as well, because often it's the scrub that is assembling the cartridge and handing it off to the surgeon for use. So familiarity with the cartridges, making sure the right sizes are chosen, and and making sure there's agreement there before it's used is important as well. And having other sizes available, like the conversion kits and every the alternative methods of closure, just even having the other sizes available to you if you come across some unexpected tissue. Sure. I mean, is there a scenario where I begin a procedure anticipating one thing, and then once we're actually performing the procedure, you know, anatomy isn't always what we expect it to be, and I find I've got to be ready to shift gears on the fly. I'm sure, yeah. Yeah. Scott, you mentioned labeling as one example of special controls. Is ECRI Institute going to, I should say, we're recording this during the public comment period on this proposed reclassification. So is ECRI Institute planning to comment? Yes, we are. So we are putting together a comment for the labeling draft. And through that, we'll offer just specific additions or deletions of the current draft. And that will be available to the public. Okay. So by the time this is released, the comment period will have closed. And then obviously, my understanding is that it's fairly open-ended in terms of specifically when FDA will follow up in the federal register. And not about this, about any sort of rulemaking process can take a while maybe for those comments to show up. Right. But they'll be there. They'll be there. And I would expect at least Medtronic's to be there. I don't know what Ethicon's doing, but yes, there'll be some manufacturer representation there too. Okay. You know, we sort of talked about what's next in the sense of there's this regulatory process is ongoing. It'll take its course. It'll happen. We talked about some steps that organizations want to take in terms of things that are not, we don't need to wait for the regulation or the classification to change in order to be vigilant about safety. I want to make it a little bit more immediate though. If I'm running an OR suite today and I know I've got procedures first thing tomorrow morning that are going to involve surgical staplers, what are some things I want to be doing today, this week to reduce the risk of patient injury? So today, this week type of stuff, that makes me think about the clinical users and possibly the patient safety and quality and risk management folks. Mm -hmm. So actually, I could start with the latter. So the risk management people, they should understand, you know, that 
that there are high-risk scenarios, there are high-risk procedures. In the event that there is an adverse event where the stapler, staple line does not form, there's bleeding, et cetera, I think it's very important to understand what to save in the event, in, mm. in the incident. So like, if we want to look at it retrospectively afterwards and investigate this thing, then we want to look at the stapler, we want to look at the cartridges. I would suggest sequestering all of that, sequestering the stapler, the cartridges, and actually numbering the cartridges in the sequence that they were fired so that we can then go back and look at the operative report and say, and follow along. In the case of circular staplers, we could, we recommend to preserve the tissue donut. So that's a piece of tissue that's actually removed. And that can be examined for the knife cut and staples, et cetera, to assess the staple line integrity. So those things are important. Also on the risk management side, making sure that the incident reporting is accurate. So coming from the, the user to risk management, and that correspondence with the manufacturer, make sure that's accurate and up to date. So as Julie mentioned earlier, sometimes an injury may not be apparent or patient harm may not be apparent until a couple of days after. Like if there's a leak or patient goes home and there, you know, there's a gastrointestinal leak from an anastomosis, then we think that the incident reporting should be updated accordingly so that it's more useful later. Because like sure. something like misfire in a report doesn't really help. Right? right. So that's something to have a plan there on the front end preventing an accident, hopefully, the patient safety folks and the users can make sure that we are, one, familiar with the devices, especially if there's been a new switch to, from one manufacturer to another or a new model, et cetera, have all the available cartridges in, ready to go, understanding which cartridges are appropriate for which tissue, understanding some of the adverse events that can occur, and they may not be serious. I mean, if the stapler gets stuck on the tissue, it's a matter of time to release it sometimes. We have to have a plan, but just understanding all the little intricate nuances that can happen. Something like firing over something unanticipated like a metal clip is contraindicated in the device IFU, meaning it could actually damage the knife and lead to an incomplete staple line. Yeah, we haven't touched on that yet. That's a great example. And you can see that. You can see damage on the anvil and the cartridge when that happens. Julie was describing the staples being laid down before the knife advances. If it's clamped on a clip or another instrument prior to firing, then you get cutting and the staples don't actually contact the anvil. So you have a cutting event without the closure and ahead of it. So that's a big problem. Or there's so much force required to fire the stapler because it's clamped and the jaws are separated that it can break. So that's another kind of leads into what can we do now? I mean, if there is an excessive amount of force required to fire the stapler, don't try to overcome and we don't need to be a hero and try to overcome the <laughs> stapler to complete that line and just take a step back and see where we're at. Julie, when we first sat down, you were showing me one of these staplers. You were sort of demonstrating, even when it's working properly, the hand strength that's necessary to fire it. It's significant, yeah. Yeah. So if I'm trying to do that, and now I've got a really, I'm picturing somebody trying to get both hands and really squeeze on it, that's an indication that maybe I want to <laughs> pause for a moment and see right. what's actually going on. Right. Yeah. We mentioned the role of folks like risk managers uh, and so on, but what about some other roles like folks in the supply chain? You asked the question about what should we do today or this week. There's also the question about planning, and that goes to the supply chain side, actually, so purchasing a supply chain. So we've had cases where there's been a shift. I've mentioned this a couple times, but there's been a big shift from one manufacturer to another mm -hmm. for cost, and sure. the entire fleet of staplers is changed over to a new to the other manufacturer, whichever you know scenario that is. And it can be the whole suite of endomechanicals that your hospital has chosen, so it's not just necessarily assuming staples and staplers are cheaper for one manufacturer, it could be the whole and a mechanical suite. 
Right. So you get some leverage on the economy of scale kind of stuff. Sure. But when that happens, sometimes the users can be upset about that because they're so familiar with the other device. And we do feel that familiarity is a huge component of this. So that's where we, again, should be a pause, not just cost, but let's look at what our users are using. Let's look at the human factors and familiarity issues. It's almost like doing a failure mode effect analysis in Mm -hmm. the engineering world to see if we make this switch, what could go wrong. And it's okay to make the switch as long as we know what could go wrong and build in those mitigating strategies. So that's important not to just make the switch blindly, but consider the users. And like Scott said, you can't just assume a stapler is a stapler. Right. Though the end goal is the same, we want a closure and an astomosis, a transaction. The method of getting there for even the staplers that are brought here is very different between the manufacturers. And you can't just assume that because I know how to fire a stapler, I know how to fire this one as well. Would you involve frontline caregivers in, obviously they're not involved in the cost analysis, but would you actually bring them in with a manufacturer to try out a device and give their feedback on how it's different or things like that? I think we'd recommend users try out devices whenever that trial is available to them for familiarity. Definitely. I mean, I think that's very important. So if they're considering a new purchase, then the users should have input on that on the committee, on the purchasing committee, and to provide that. Absolutely. And also receive training from the manufacturer. All right. Well, Scott, Julie, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. It's fun. Thank you. For more information on surgical stapler safety, you can find past issues of the top 10 health technology hazard reports, including descriptions of the risks we discussed in this episode, on the ECRI Institute website. You can also learn more about ECRI Institute's Accident and Forensic Investigation Services. Just search the phrase Accident Investigation on the ECRI website, and that's www.ecri.org. You can also see today's show notes for members-only links to surgical stapler evaluations and guidance. Be sure to subscribe to Smart Healthcare Safety on Spotify to get our latest episodes. We welcome your feedback. Please visit us at ecri.org slash podcasts or email us at ecri-podcasts at ecri.org.